Uh, long ago, there was a shipping company, and they decided with all the new technology that they became aware of, all the new technology and the, the marvel of, of science, they decided we're going to make a new luxury ship a luxury liner, and uh, they're going to take wealthy patrons across the Atlantic Ocean, and so they're all excited for this, until it gets to the point that they have so much confidence in their ship, so much confidence in the design, in the technology, and the science behind it, that when they get ready to set sail, they realize, hey, we don't have enough of those, like, lifeboats, you know, the life rafts, and they're like, no, it's okay, we don't need to worry about that, because we are so confident that our ship is unsinkable. Now, uh, thank you. Thank you to alarms that go off randomly. And uh, I did not jump today. That's a good thing. Uh, Woo! If you weren't awake, you are now. Can we do that in about half hour when I'm getting right to the end of the message? (laughs) Thanks to Leonardo DiCaprio, we know what happened with that story, right? We're talking about the unsinkable ship, the Titanic. And what happened? It was a disaster. It sank. We know that story. You ever thought about how that story relates to human faith? How it relates to real life with you and I? Because when we consider our life, where do you take confidence in? When you consider your, 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 your career, your, your relationships, your marriage, your children, your parenting, when you consider your retirement, when you consider your life, where do you take your confidence from? Where, who do you put your trust in? Now, of course, we're at church. And so we're all going to say, well, well, we trust God. We, we, we want God a, a part of that. But how often is it that we put our trust in our system, in our technology, in our method, in our work ethic, in our education, in our knowledge, in our insight, whatever it is, we put our confidence in ourselves to be successful in marriage and career and parenting and retirement and and life in general and all of those things. Now, I know you're saying, well, I don't know. That's not me. I'm a good Christian. Well, I'll tell you what. I'm in this pastor cohort where there's, uh, there's about 10 or 12 of us pastors, and we get together twice a year. Uh, and it's a great thing. We come together. We get to pray for one another. We get to learn from one another. And it's been a really fruitful time uh, for me to be able to be in this, this cohort with these other pastors. And one of our gatherings, we got together, and we spent a morning asking this question. Can you plant a church? Can you grow a church apart from God? It's an interesting question. Well, how, how would you answer Now, of course, we're like, well, no, you can't grow a church apart from God. Actually, you absolutely can. Because to to grow a church apart from God, here's what you need, okay? You need a charismatic leader who's a very good public speaker, all right? You need a worship leader who wears skinny jeans and a long t-shirt. That's a little bit of a joke right there. But you need a worship leader who can give a concert-like experience to people. You need a little bit of money to have some technology and modern technology and, 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 and uh, that sort of thing. And you need systems. Systems to get people plugged in and connected into the church. In fact, you may not know this, but as a pastor, there are books and conferences that, that do this exact thing. That say, if you do these things, that you will pack your pews and have the church full of people. 
The question is, is that the goal? Is that the goal of a church? It's just to pack the pews and get people to come to church. No, we talked about this last week. We talked about the mission of God. The mission of God is not just to pack the pews, but to make disciples, to have people who live and love and serve and follow after God. But again, what we just looked at is they said, here's a method. Here's a process. Here's a system. If you follow this system, you're going to be successful in church. And again, how many of us, we live life like that? We read books. We go to conferences. We talk to people. We are looking for a system, a process. We're looking to a four-step process to ensure that my life turns out good. To ensure that I uh, have a good marriage, that my kids are good kids, to ensure that my career is successful, to ensure I can overcome the mental health issues I have. And again, we're Christians, right? So in the middle of pursuing this system, we're going to pray and say, God, would you bless it? God, would you help me do this? When in reality, we are trusting in ourselves. We're trusting in our own wisdom and the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of a, of a process. We've been in a series for a little while now called The Story. We're trying to grasp the meta-narrative of the Bible, where we have all these different characters, all these different commands, all the different books of the Bible, and sometimes it feels like they're disjointed. Why do we have all these things? And we've taken the series to say, you know, the Bible is actually one big story. That from the beginning of Genesis all the way to the end in Revelation, it is all pointing to Jesus on the cross in our place. Last week, we, we talked about how Jesus handed off his baton. He had a mission. He had a purpose to restore people into a right relationship with God. That was the reason he came. He accomplished the heavy lifting, and now he's handing the baton off. He's handing the mission off to the disciples who become the church. Saying, church, here's your job. The problem is, the disciples, if you remember, they were struggling. They, they saw the resurrected Jesus, but if you remember the text, it said some of them were still doubting. Is this really true? Did Jesus really rise from the grave? Can we really do what Jesus called us to do? And that's where we bring our text today in Acts chapter 2. Now, Acts chapter 2, if you've been in church for a long time, Acts chapter 2 is one of those uh, chapters that divide the church. We argue about what is the point, what is the focal point of Acts chapter 2. And one of the things I, wanna, I want you to understand, especially as you look at Scripture, when you're looking at the Bible, Scripture interprets Scripture, which means we can't just pull a text out of context and say, oh, wow, it says to do this. No, you have to understand the context it's in. You have to allow other Scripture to interpret it. So Acts chapter 2, it follows Acts chapter 1. And what does Acts chapter 1 say? I'm glad you asked that. Let me tell you. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus is preparing to return to heaven to prepare a place for us. And he tells those disciples, he says, I want you to wait here in Jerusalem for a few days. Because in a few days, you're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And then once you're baptized with the Holy Spirit, then he's going to say, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and throughout the ends of the earth. Okay? So what Jesus did is he said, I want you to wait because you're going to re receive the Holy Spirit. And then you're going to be witnesses throughout the world. He's essentially reiterating what Jesus said in Matthew 28. Matthew 28, our passage last week, we talked about the Great Commission, where Jesus said, 
Church, here's the responsibility. Go make disciples of all nations. He's reiterating that in Acts chapter 1. And immediately after Acts chapter 1 comes Acts chapter 2. Imagine that. The Holy Spirit arrives and descends upon the disciples. And we see in Acts chapter 2, the disciples are boldly proclaiming Jesus. In fact, they boldly proclaim Jesus. And it says that 3,000 people were added to the church on a single day. So as I'm looking at Scripture, I'm trying to say Acts chapter 2 follows Acts chapter 1. So therefore, Acts chapter 2 is telling us how God looks to equip and empower the church, disciples, Christians, believers, you and I, to fulfill the mission of God through the power of the Holy Spirit. In fact, I would say that what God wants to accomplish in us and through us, every one of us in this room, what God wants to accomplish in you and through you does not happen by you trusting in yourself. By you trusting in the systems of the world, by the process that a book told you to follow. No, our success, our accomplishments will come as we trust in God and rely on the power of the Holy Spirit who lives within us. Let's jump right in. Starts in verse 1 and it says, On the day of Pentecost arrived, the disciples were all together in one place. Pentecost is a Jewish holiday. It came 50, day, 50 days after the Passover, the day that Jesus was died. It's been 50 days. And uh, it was typically a, a holiday that would celebrate the early wheat festival. So what would happen is in Jerusalem, you'd have, you've had Jews from all over the area, all over the, the world would come to Jerusalem for this festival, for this feast, for this celebration. So you've got a ton of people in the city uh, of Jerusalem for the celebration. And it says, while the disciples were gathered... Verse 2, suddenly there came from heaven the sound like a violent rushing wind that filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared on them and rested on each of them. Okay, that's a little crazy. That's a little like, whoa, what's happening here? What's going on? Well, again, we got to remember the promise that Jesus gave. Jesus said in a couple of days... I'm going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Jesus said in Matthew 28, I'm going to be with you always. Yet where is Jesus right now? He's returned to the Father. He's preparing a place for us. And so here we have this picture that this wind, it descends upon this house where the disciples are. And you have these, these tongues of fire that, that rest on the disciples. Now, what you have to understand is in Scripture, both wind and fire, they often refer to the Spirit of God or the presence of God. In fact, if you're one of those people that likes to write in your Bible, you might write Ezekiel 37 next to verse, uh, verse 2. Because in Ezekiel, the Spirit of God brought Ezekiel to a valley of dry bones that represent God's people. And, and, and God calls and speaks to those bones, and the bones, all of a sudden, muscle and tendons appear, but those bones still don't come alive until God commands Ezekiel to prophesy. And it says in Ezekiel 37, verses 9 and 10, it says, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. And they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Here's this wind, Ezekiel 37, representing the Spirit of God 
and it brings life on those dead bones. Listen, that's what Acts chapter 2 is pointing to. That as the wind ascends on this house, it is a picture of the Spirit of God breathing this, this incredible spiritual life and power onto the disciples in the early church, saying, no longer are you dead, but I am living in you. And then the fire. Fire, again, in Scripture, is a symbol of God's presence. Remember the story of Moses and the burning bush. Who was in the burning bush? It was God speaking to Moses. Later in Exodus, we see the people of God, the nation, they are uh, guided and protected in the wilderness by what? A pillar of fire. In fact, a couple weeks ago when we looked at the, ba the, the baptism of Jesus, if you remember, uh, Matthew chapter 3 John the Baptist said, I baptize you with water, but Jesus is going to come and he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Okay? So wind and fire, they, they, they are significant symbols representing God's spirit, the presence of God being poured out on these disciples. And something that I think is, is fascinating to look at is when you notice those tongues of fire, they rested, the scripture says it rested on every individual, every believer individually. Every one of them had this tongue of fire sitting on them, which is significant because in the, old, in, the, in the old covenant, typically you saw the spirit of God, it rested on the nation as a corporate level. And so, you know, if this was the old covenant here, we'd say, well, well the spirit of God is on the church, but it's not on us individually. But now, these tongues of fire are resting on the individuals, emphasizing that the Spirit of God rests on those who have a personal relationship with God. And look what happens next, verse 4. The, the, the wind comes down, the tongues of fire, and it says, The disciples were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And we see that, and we're like, well, what kind of tongues were they speaking of? What kind of tongues were they talking Again, we need to look at context. We just said that this is the day of Pentecost. So there are, are devout men from every nation who have descended upon Jerusalem. And you can imagine if there was this loud uh, ushering of wind, it's going to gather some attention. And the people in Jerusalem are like, what is that sound coming out of the house? And they gather to hear what's going on to see what the disciples are doing. And there's this miracle. In verse 7, it says that every one of those people that were there, they heard the disciples declaring the mighty works of God in their own language. See, there are at least 13 different nations that are represented in this text. And as these disciples are speaking the mighty works of God, they don't have to do closed captioning. They don't have to pull out Siri to translate it. No, it, it, in a miracle of God, these people are hearing The, the mighty works of God in their own native language. It'd be as if I'm up here speaking in English, or my, my, whatever you want to call my English. It's not great English. I'm up speaking, and you're hearing in French, or German, or, or, or Southern, or Texan, or whatever it happens to be. You're hearing in your own language. <laughs> That's a good one. That one was free. That is supernatural. 
And the crowds are saying, wait a second, hold on, what's going on here? These disciples, they're, they're Galileans. Like, these are people from, like, Wiley City. Like, we don't expect them to be very learned or, like, to be able to speak in multiple languages. And as a result, verse 12, it says, all who were gathered were amazed and perplexed, saying one to another, what does this mean? This is one of the things that happen when God is at work. When we see God at work in our lives, people become amazed. What is going on here? They can't understand it, but they know something is special happening. But on the other, high, uh, other side, when God is doing something marvelous, while some people are amazed and perplexed, some people mock it. Verse 13 says, some mocked and said, they're filled with new wine. They said, they're drunk. Now, they're not drunk. Paul, Peter's going to say, hey, they're not drunk. It's only 9 a.m. Okay, now I know some of you, that doesn't matter to you. You had your morning beer. But for most people, 9 a.m. is not a time for them to be drunk. Now, I love this. I love what happens next. Because here's this happening. There's this crowd gathered. They're seeing this miracle of this, this gift of tongues. And they're amazed and perplexed. And one of the disciples is going to stand up and address the crowd. You know which disciple it was? Peter. Now, the last time we saw Peter, Luke chapter 22, Jesus is about to be arrested. He's about to go on trial. He's about to go suffer on the cross. And he tells Peter, he says, Peter, listen, I've prayed for you that you would not fall. But Peter, when you do, and when you come back to the faith, I want you to strengthen your brothers. And Peter's like all of us. He's like, yeah, I'm not going to fall. What are you talking about, man? Jesus, I got your back, bro. Like, I'll go to prison for you. Jesus, I will die for you. You know what happens next? Jesus is arrested. He, he's getting brought before the, the, the authorities. And Peter's following along. And there's a servant girl who sees, this is a servant girl. Right? Hey, you're one of his disciples. And what does Peter do? Uh, me? No, I'm not, no, 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 I'm not a disciple. Uh, uh, what are you talking about? And we see Peter go through this crushing and humiliating defeat. He just promised Jesus, listen, I would go to prison. I would die for you. And then three times he denies even being a follower of Jesus. Peter was a coward. Can we acknowledge Peter was a coward? That would have been a humiliating defeat. Yet, here just a couple weeks later, Peter is standing up in front of the crowd, and he addresses the crowd, and he says, these people are not drunk, since it's only the third hour of the day. Again, it's 9 a.m., they're not drunk. And then Peter quotes the prophet Joel, and says, listen, God has already declared that he's going to pour out his spirit on, uh, on his people, and they're going to prophesy, and they're going to do all sorts of miracles. Why? So that... Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Again, here's Peter the coward. Here's some of his sermon. Here's what he's going to tell these people. He says, you men of Israel, hear these words that Jesus of Nazareth, the man attested to you by God with mighty works and many signs and wonders. He was delivered up. And here's what he says, verse 23. But you crucified him by the hands of lawless men. 
Verse 36, it says, let all the house of Israel know with certainty that, that God has made Jesus, listen to this, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Verse 38, he says, repent and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Where's the coward? He's telling these people, listen, this is what you did. You crucified him. Your sin put him on the cross. And I don't know about you, but I'm like, what is going on here? What makes this doubting coward who was afraid of a teenage, of a teen servant girl, what makes him stand up in front of a crowd and boldly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ? The Holy Spirit. It is the power of the Holy Spirit. So I want to take a second and just say, well, who is the Holy Spirit? Let's just ask some of these questions. Who is the Holy Spirit? What does the Holy Spirit do? Number one, who is the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is God himself living inside of us. Jesus, in John chapter 14, he's talking about the Holy Spirit. And he says, I'm going to ask the Father to give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth. He says, I'm going to ask God to give you another. Now, this another means another of the same kind, okay? So it's kind of like, hey, if I gave you a Coke, and you're like, I don't like a Coke, well, I'm going to give you another. I'll give you a Pepsi. It's the same thing. I, I, I'm sorry, but it's the same thing, right? It's a, it's a soda pop. It's a cola. It, it's another of the same thing. That is what Jesus is saying. He said, you've had me with you. I've been with you. But God's going to give you another of the same kind. He's going to give you another representing the Holy Spirit. This is a picture of the Trinity. In the Trinity, we have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. God the Son has been with the Christians, and now he says, I'm going to give you another of God the Holy Spirit. In fact, I love this in John 16, verse 7. Jesus says, it is for your benefit that I go away. Because if I do not go away, then the Counselor, the Helper, the Holy Spirit will not come to you. I don't know about you, but I'm kind of like, actually, I think Jesus would be pretty much, I think having Jesus with me would be better, right? Because if, if me and Jesus are hanging out and we're walking down the road and my dog and cat, they run into a road and get run over. Like if Jesus is with me, he's going to be like, man, we're going to resurrect that dog and we're going to do a funeral for the cat, right? Like on the spot, boom. Dog's living, cat's buried. You better have Jesus with me. But Jesus can't be with us all the time. Scripture says he is going to prepare a place for us. He's going to sit at the right hand of God to intercede on our behalf. And so he can't be with us all the time. And so that is why he says, it's better that I go. Because when I go, the Holy Spirit, who is God himself, will live inside of you and be with you forever. This is the fulfillment of Matthew 28, where Jesus said, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. Because we have God and the Holy Spirit that lives inside of us. So who is the Holy Spirit? He is God living inside of us. What does the Holy Spirit do? 
Scripture gives us a lot of things that that the Holy Spirit does. It says in John 14, uh, 16, that he is our helper. He is a, a, a counselor. This idea of counselor, this idea of helper, actually comes from the word paraclete. Para means alongside, and clete means one who speaks. And so the Holy Spirit is one who, who speaks alongside us. And you can picture this, that as we're, we're walking through life, as we're going through whatever we're going through, that we have the Holy Spirit there to speak to us, to give us answers, to give us wisdom, to, to encourage, to counsel us, to help us with whatever we have. In fact, in the, in the book of Isaiah, it says, whenever you turn to the left or to the right, I am the voice behind you that says, this is the way, walk in it. That is the Holy Spirit guiding us as a helper or a counselor. The Holy Spirit, another thing the Holy Spirit does, Scripture says, is it points us to Jesus. In John 15, verse 26, it said, Jesus says, when the helper comes from the Father, the Spirit of truth, he will bear witness about me. It means he's going to point to Jesus. John 16, verse 14, it says, he, the Holy Spirit, will glorify me. The Holy Spirit is a shy member of the Trinity. This is where uh, one of the ways you can know if the Holy Spirit is actually leading somebody is who's a hero of their story? Who's a hero of their story? Because if somebody's always talking about their knowledge, about their wisdom, about, about all the things they've done for God, I've done this class, I've led this group, I'm, look at all that I've done. Who's the attention on? Who's the, who's, who's the hero? Themselves. But the Spirit always makes Jesus the hero. So you want to look for somebody who is led by the Spirit? Listen to who they glorify most. Is it themselves and their wisdom and what they've done, or is it God and God alone? Scripture also says that the Holy Spirit teaches us, reminds us of truth. In John 14, verse 26, it says, The Helper will teach you all things and bring to remembrance the things that I have said to you. He's the Spirit of truth. And again, as we've talked through this series, what is the truth that Jesus is talking about? Is he talking about religion and all the things we're supposed to do to try and earn God's favor? Like the Pharisees? No. The truth is the grace of God and what Jesus has done in our place. Listen, the Holy Spirit, Scripture says the Holy Spirit does a lot of things. But in context for where we are, we're talking about this mission of God that has been extended to the disciples, to the church, who have waited for the Holy Spirit to come. And the Holy Spirit has come through this rushing wind and the tongues of fire. And now they're boldly proclaiming Jesus. So I would say the Holy Spirit, what is its purpose? What does it do? The Holy Spirit empowers us to live for God. The Holy Spirit empowers us to live for God. In fact, that is the story of Peter. That is the story of the disciples. This is what changed Peter from being a coward to standing up and boldly proclaiming Jesus. This is what causes these disciples to go from being doubters to to doubt even when they saw the resurrected Jesus to becoming people who are going to die for their faith and be martyrs because of how much they believed in Jesus. In fact, the book of Acts, you see this tremendous explosion of power in the early church where the gospel is taken from Jerusalem 
to Judea and to the ends of the earth. The world is turned upside down. Through ordinary Christians who are filled with the Holy Spirit and empowered by him to live for God. And that story has continued from the book of Acts throughout history to even right here, right now at Restoration Church and across the world where there are billions of people today that are going to worship Jesus. And how did that happen? I'll tell you what, it wasn't because the disciples figured out we need to get a charismatic leader who's a good public, uh, good communicator and put them up on stage. There was, no, there was no Chris Tomlin in the early church to lead worship. No, the disciples, ordinary believers, were filled with the Holy Spirit. They, they relied on God. And God used that to change the world. In fact, here's, here's the summary of this passage. Here's, here's what I'd want you to get. The Holy Spirit fuels and empowers God's people for God's mission. Do you understand that? The mission that God has for you. If you're a believer, you're a part of the church. So part of that is to make disciples of all nations. But what God has called you to, the Holy Spirit is the fuel that empowers you to accomplish that. So let me just do a couple points of application. Number one, we have to trust and depend on God and the Holy Spirit rather than trusting and depending on ourselves, right? This is the secret sauce in the life of faith. This is what makes Peter the coward into Peter the bold preacher. This is what takes a group of 120 disciples gathered together in an upper room and explodes them into a worldwide movement that has resulted in billions of people today worshiping Jesus. This is what takes ordinary people like you and I and allows God to do something remarkable in us and through us, not because we're awesome, not because we read a book that said, here's some tips on things you should try, but because in obedience to what God has called us, we trust in him and not in ourselves. In fact, there's a story uh, about a college professor from St. Louis University. His name is John Kavanaugh. And he was a Catholic, but he decided, I want to I figure out how I can give my life to people. So he decided, I'm going to go to Calcutta, and I'm going to go spend three months working with Mother Teresa. If you're going to learn how to love people well, that would probably be a good place to learn. He goes to Calcutta and meets Mother Teresa, and says, Mother Teresa, would you pray for me? Sure, I would take that. Mother Teresa, would you pray for me? And she says, what would you like me to pray for? And this college professor says, well, would you pray for clarity? You know what her response was? No, I won't pray that God gives you clarity. Clarity is the last thing that you are clinging to. It is the last thing that you must learn to let go of. And Kavanaugh said, well, hold on a second, Mother Teresa. I don't know if that's what he called her. That's what I would call her, Mother Teresa. He says, hold on a second. You seem to have so much clarity in everything you do the way you love, the way you serve. And you tell me not to pray for clarity? You have so much clarity. And she says, no, I've never had clarity. What I've always had is trust in God. So I'm praying not that you have clarity, that you have trust in God. You ever thought about that? 
How do you know if you are trusting in yourself or whether you are trusting in God and the Holy Spirit to work through you? Well, I would say peace. Do you have peace? And this is so contrary, contrary to the way that we live, right? Because when we're going through some hard stuff and we're like, hey, peace is what we want. We want, we want peace. What do we do? We cling for control, right? We, we clasp our hands and say, I'm going to fight through this. I've got this uh, broken relationship, man. I'm going to fight through this. I'm going to hold on to this. I'm going to figure it out. Our marriage is struggling. Oh, I'm going to try harder. Our work is struggling. Man, I've I got to read some stuff and, and figure out how to get better at this. And we cling, and, and our fists are so tight, and we got these white knuckles. Listen, control has never brought peace. It's never brought peace. Jeremiah 17 says, The person who trusts the Lord and whose confidence in him will be blessed. He is like a tree planted by water, who sent roots toward the stream. And listen to this. He doesn't have to fear when the heat comes, for his foliage will remain green. He doesn't have to worry in the year of drought because he will not cease producing fruit. Why? Because when you are trusting in him, when we are depending on him, that is where our roots begin to go deep. And our roots are connected to him. And the Holy Spirit starts working through us. Where no longer do I have to fight and control this, now I can just let go and trust that God is at work. So how do we do this, though? It sounds really good when you talk about it, Pastor, but how do I practically do this? Listen, you grow in your trust and dependence on God and the Holy Spirit simply through continually surrendering to him. It is a simple thing. We continue to surrender ourselves to God. And I'm going to be honest, some of us, we've not been willing to surrender. We haven't been willing to let go of control. We're still here. God, I'm going to make sure my marriage works out. God, I'm going to make sure my kids turn out good. God, I'm going to make sure that I retire and everything is good in retirement. I'm going to make sure all these things. God, I've got this bitterness towards this person who wronged me. I'm not giving it to you. I'm going to hold on to it. They're going to feel my wrath. They're going to know they wronged me. And what are we doing? We're holding on. We're clinging to control. Listen, some of us in this room, we claim to love God. We claim to trust him while we're clinging for control. We're clinging to do it in our own strength, in our own wisdom, in our own knowledge. You will not experience the power of the Holy Spirit until you learn to simply let go, to open your hands. I know it's a cliche statement, but at some point we actually have to learn how to let go and just let God work. Because I'll be honest, I like to be my own little God. I like to say I'm going to control my future. Can I just tell you God's a better God than you are? Can we acknowledge God is a better God than you are? He's proven he's good. He's proven he's faithful. He's proven his love for you. 
I tell you, for me, surrendering means I have to spend more time thinking about God than I'm thinking about whatever I'm dealing with. Because I tell you what, this is what happens. We're worried about our kids. We're worried about our marriage. We're worried about our future. We're worried about our country. And I can spend all my time focusing about the problem. And to some, some degree, we've got to shift our attention from the problem to God. We've got to focus more on God than we're focused on the stuff. And I tell you what, when I'm doing this, it changes how I pray. It changes how I pray. Because typically, when I'm trying to control things, here's my prayer, God bless me. God, make what I'm doing work. Make this successful. Make them see what I'm doing. And, 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 and I hear what my prayer is all about. Bless me. Do this for me. Answer my prayer. But when I'm surrendering things, my prayer is, God, I trust you with this. God, I don't know how you're going to work out, but I'm going to trust you with this. God, I'm not going to tell you what, how to do it. I'm just going to let go and trust that, God, you have a purpose and a plan. Second thing we need to do for application is we need to recognize the work of the Holy Spirit in and around our lives. Because I don't know about you, but sometimes I read Scripture, and I read what happened in the book of Acts, and I'm like, well, that was then. That was then, and this is now, right? Like, like back then, we saw, these holy, we saw the Holy Spirit descend in the wind and the fire, and we saw the disciples, and, and they're filled, and there's this crazy revival. There's all these miracles. That, I mean, you read through the book of Acts, it's amazing. On a single day, 3,000 people were added to the church. That's awesome. We read, we read uh, that the early church, they're threatened by the authorities to stop preaching Jesus. And remember the story, the, the disciples, they gather together, and, and they pray for power and boldness, and God literally shakes the building they're in. Like, that's, like who does that? Does that happen today? We read in the book of Acts about incredible healings and, and, and sickness and disease that are healed. We read about Peter. He raises a girl from the dead. The coward, Peter, raises a girl from the dead. We have the story of Paul and Silas, how they're chained and in prison. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, the chains are dropped and the doors are opened. See, sometimes what happens is we say, well, that was then. That was, that was Scripture. That was the book of Acts. That's not here and now. But did you know that in Romans chapter 11, it says that that same Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the grave is alive in us. That same Spirit who did all that stuff in the book of Acts is alive in each and every one of us as believers in Christ. That if we are believers, we have God living inside of us. Let me ask you, have you ever, have you recently stopped to say, God, I want to see where you're working at? Have you stopped just to look and say, God, give me eyes to see where you are working, what you are doing in and around my life? I did that this week. I had a birthday. I feel a little older today than I did before. But you know, one of the weird things with getting older, the older I get, the more I realize how messy my childhood was. 
a lot of brokenness, a lot of dysfunction, a lot of, a lot of hurt, a lot of pain. And I thought about this week, I thought, here I am today. I'm married to the love of my life for the last 21 years. We've got five kids who love Jesus and who love us. I get to stand up every week and open up scriptures and teach them. I get to be a pastor at this church. And I'll tell you what, none of that is because I'm awesome. This is the power of the Holy Spirit working in broken, dysfunctional people like me. This is the power of God in and around us. Think just around our church where we see the power of the Holy Spirit working. Listen, listen, folks, there are people in our church that are celebrating weeks or months or years of sobriety over addiction, over, over, over sexual perversion, over, over difficult things. Listen, that is the power of God working in people's lives. There are people in our church suffering health issues, financial issues, uh, mental health issues. And as those people are suffering, there, there are people in our church suffering the, the loss of a child. Yet in the midst of that, they can still come and lift their hand up and praise God for who he is. You know what that is? That is the power of the Holy Spirit working in people's lives. None of that happens because you have a great pastor. That happens because the Holy Spirit is alive and working in people's lives right here. These kids up here, this choir. That wasn't a result of some book that said, here's how you have a kid's choir and make kids look really cute and make them sing really well. No, these are kids whose hearts are shaped by the gospel who've been transformed because they've come into a relationship with Jesus and their lives are changed and they're saying, how can I serve him? What are the things in your life that you can look and see the power of God working in? That's not the result of your strength or your greatness or your wisdom or the book you read or the system you followed. What are the things that you can look and just say, man, I see the power of God working in my life right now, in our church, and the people around me? And can we just stop today and praise God for those things? Can we just stop and say, God, this is awesome. You are alive today. You are working in our hearts and in our lives. And we get to see it around us. We get to see it. Listen, I love y'all. I want you to experience the power of the Holy Spirit to empower you and to fuel you to accomplish the mission and the purposes that God has for you. It comes as we not trust in ourselves and not trust in our systems. But as we surrender and trust him to work things out, 
for our good, for his glory. Let's pray.